Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, coming to you from midsummery London. The roses are blooming, the skies are grey. <laughs> Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? Hi, Octavia. Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, the sky, my skies are grey too, but. I'm currently just really enjoying being able to see friends, including you. Yeah. Who I saw last weekend and it was the best. And it was sunny too on that oh, day. It was so. a beautiful day. But it, I'm feeling very grateful for our partial return to socializing that's been allowed. In the last week and a bit, I have met two one-year-old children of friends for the first time. I went to a wonderful publishing lunch with an editor, which I haven't been able to do in a long time. And I've seen people who I haven't seen before the pandemic started and there was a piece of my life missing and I feel like it's so good to have it back. So that's how I'm feeling right now. How about you? Yeah, same. Totally the same, basically. I mean, that afternoon we spent together, oh my God, in the hot sun, eating soft serve ice cream on that pretend high line in King's Cross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was so restorative. Um, yeah, and I've also been meeting babies, lots of babies, um, seeing babies? friends. I know, but all the babies. It, I've yesterday actually met uh, another very lovely baby for the first time, and it made me feel a bit like a visiting dignitary. Like, <laughs> here comes the mayor, ready your babies for the photo op. Because like, <laughs> I just, I have this like repetitive memory of just being handed babies a lot at the moment. Yep. Like, here's the baby, here's another baby, here's another baby. They all look like Winston Churchill. But no, I mean, it is, it, it's amazing just to feel less anxious about physical contact, isn't it? And to hug freely and with abandon and, and like, hold these new lives without freaking out about the risks so much. I mean, I got to hold my goddaughter Xanthi for the first time. So I've met her a few times since she's been born, but but didn't want to hold her until I'd been vaccinated properly and stuff. Um, and yeah, I got to hold her for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And it was really profound, actually, because she is the daughter of my very oldest friend who I met when I was two. And she was born a month to the day before my dad died. And my dad was kind of a second family to, to my old friend Tamsin, Xanthi's mum. And it was just so moving to kind of hold this little person whose entire life so far is just a beautiful recasting of this time that's been so sad and tender for me and for my mum. And it's just to have this kind of physical embodiment of that time and this gorgeous little person who's just beginning their life. I felt very much like a a, a circle of life kind of moment, you know, mm. with one loss comes a new life and like she'll always feel connected to, to my dad in, in a funny way, I think. That's and I just, beautiful. yeah, it was really beautiful. And I thought I can't, I sort of can't wait to see her grow. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be very exciting. So yeah, I'm feeling quite kind of fuzzy and gooey at the moment. I look forward to our fuzzy gooey mini-sode. <laughs> but before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. You will also get access to an extra mini-sode each month and have the chance to suggest themes. Keep them coming. We're loving the themes that our patrons are suggesting. That's right. And this month's Patreon mini-sode will be released in a week's time. And it's going to be the first of a two-parter about how we got into our careers. I'm going to start with Carrie. So if you want to learn more about my deeply enigmatic co-host and how she became the woman she is today, head to our Patreon and, um, and subscribe.
I think you're the only person who calls me enigmatic. (laughs) (laughs) You're not enigmatic to me, but I think you're enigmatic to our listeners. I don't think that's true. (laughs) Thank you. Um, But before that, welcome to Minisode 22 and thanks for tuning in. The format for these Minisodes between full shows is, for the next half hour or so, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately with the usual musical interludes chosen by Eddie. That's right. And today, we decided to dedicate this show to talking of soft and gooey pets. (laughs) Just pets, that's it. It's just going to be a list of animals that we've really loved over the years. And maybe a little bit about the noble creatures immortalized in literature as well. So this theme was inspired by the book that Deborah Levy recommended on our most recent full show, which if you haven't listened to yet, I highly recommend you do because she was, um, you know, as ever, very, very interesting to talk to. Anyway, she recommended this book called The Friend by Sigrid Nunes, which sounds I mean, brilliant and also kind of heart-wrenching, in which a woman adopts a dog called Apollo, who's a Great Dane, from, well, after her friend, who was his owner, dies by suicide. And the novel is, as far as I understand it, basically about their growing bond between the woman and this dog, Apollo, and what it brings to her life and what the relationship brings to her life. So it got us thinking about pets we'd encountered in literature, pets that have brightened our lives. So before we get into the faithful companions from the books we've loved, I actually just want to know about your pet life, Carrie. (laughs) How do you feel about pets? Did you grow up with pets? What's your relationship like to animals generally? I feel good about pets. It's interesting. I was thinking about this. There's such a stigma with not feeling good about pets to the point where part of me wants to be contrarian and say, I don't feel good about pets, but (laughs) I do. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think that stigma is? I think that we think that if people can't love animals, there's something missing from their heart. Yeah. Do you think that's true? Well, part of me thinks that a true love of animals would actually just be letting animals be by themselves and not coddling them and taking them into our lives. I Mm. I don't think that somebody not loving animals means that they're deficient in some way as a person or they don't know how to love. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting way of reframing it. So like subjugation of animals is actually not about how much we love them, but we want to use them for our own gain. Yeah, I sometimes think that, honestly. And and actually, I represent an author named Henry Mance, who just wrote a book called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. And he has a chapter about pets, which is really interesting. The whole book is about how can we reframe our relationship to animals. And, and it's a book that's born out of a real love of animals. And Henry has a cat that he loves. But I, he really made me question some of the ways in which I'd thought about what pets are and what they do and what keeping pets actually means for the animals themselves and for the larger environment and the ecosystem of animals. Um, I don't think it's necessarily changed what I might do in terms of keeping pets, but he asked some interesting questions. And I, I, I mean, in the same way that having a baby isn't necessarily a totally selfless act, I think keeping a pet is very much about us rather than it about animals. Yeah, I completely agree with you there, especially the like, you know, sort of designer pet market. Adopting animals is one thing, but like spending a large amount of money for a particular breed, I I, I don't sort of condemn people for doing it at all, but I do think it's important to see it as something different, right? Like that pet is, is a can be a status symbol or I don't know, it's complicated, I think. Yeah. And pets can be a kind of act of self-care, you know, totally. having having a dog 
well, I can get into my history with pets, but my parents have a dog now um, that they got after I, long after I left home. Um, her name is Maisie. She's a golden doodle. She's a very good girl. I love her very much. And I see how she changes people's moods. I mean, it's amazing to have a dog in the room and have that kind of silliness and unrequited love and affection. Just, Not unrequited. Just changes. No, sorry. <laughs> You talking about cats. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not unrequited, unconditional. Unconditional. <laughs> unconditional. And in fact, I never thought I was a dog person because I grew up with cats and I love cats. I had a black cat named Lila who we got when I was about eight along with her brother Velvet, who was very sadly eaten by coyotes. Oh, um, Velvet. I know. I know. R.I.P. Velvet. And also my sister then got another cat named Chloe who was also eaten by coyotes. Oh, my God. You guys yeah. were like keeping those coyotes <laughs> fat fat and happy. Well, they disappeared and we assumed they were eaten by coyotes. But Maybe they yeah, just went to sad. live a, a flourishing, happy life in the mountains. Mm, we'll get into this later. <laughs> Maybe we need to talk. But yeah, I love cats. I love that they're doing their own thing. Lila drooled excessively when she purred. She lived for many, many years, even after I had left the house. And I often think I would like cats again, although Eddie, my partner, is allergic to them. So that is a barrier. But how about you? Did you grow up with pets? How do you feel about pets? I'm sorry, I started that on a really negative note, didn't I? This is meant to be really a fun... (laughs) loving. (laughs) (laughs) Carrie's like slapping it down. No, listen, I think that all those points that you made are super important. And I, they're they're thoughts that I have often had and then also banished because I just want to enjoy the animals in my life. And I think that's, it's complicated. I do think it's complicated. I do think that people often think about pets in terms of what the animal can bring to their life and not the other way around. I think I've been guilty of that too. And I'm totally with you on the kind of incredible emotional power of having an animal around, especially if you are someone who struggles with anxiety or depression, it can be an absolute game changer. But before we get into that, yes, cats really for me as well. The first cat we had, well, that I remember having a really strong bond with was this Moggy called Prudence, who was a rescue cat. And I think my parents got her when I was about four and she was so grumpy and she used to scratch all my friends and it was always a bit awkward because people would come and play at my house and they'd go back with these scratches. And she actually, it turned out, just didn't like children particularly or actually lots of people. And we moved to Hong Kong for a bit when I was about nine and a friend of the family came and lived in my parents' house while we were away with the cat, Prudence. And Prudence went through this like complete renaissance of character and became this incredibly like loving, chilled out lady because all she actually wanted was one person to love and not noisy children running around. So she ended up going to live with Carol, this friend, and they had a gorgeous relationship until the end of Prudence's days. And she lived in an absolute splendor in a tiny flat with no garden because she didn't really like to go outside. And I think that's the thing, right? Like when you meet the animal themselves and meet them where they are and figure out actually what they want from their life, it might be totally at odds with what you want from that animal. And having the flexibility to allow the animal to direct how you live alongside it, I think is is hard, you know, and it means making changes. But when we were in Hong Kong, we got a Siamese kitten called Mimi, who honestly, I think was a duchess reincarnated, I would say. She was a very imperious cat, very loud, very chatty, and also a complete idiot. 
um, and she came back with us and um, she lived to a grand old age of like 25 and was a great, great, great family friend um, for all of us. And then there were also like a bunch of other kind of funny animals in my life because my mum and her siblings grew up on an apple farm in Somerset where my uncle still lives. And we used to go a lot to visit him when I was a kid. So there were all kinds of animals around down there. Also some quite brutal lessons about the violence of nature for a young mm-hmm. Octavia. <laughs> we go down and find the bodies of voles and mice oh, scattered yeah. around by the farm cats and stuff. But yeah, there were a couple of really intense ginger tomcats who we called the ginger biscuits, who were very uh, muscly, <laughs> quite like beefy. And then there was a very dopey golden Labrador called Persephone, who I really loved but she was quite a a really dumb, loving animal. And then, most interestingly probably, there was a peacock called Oberon, who I think I've mentioned on the show before a long time ago. And my grandmother died when I was about one, but her legacy was this peacock who she had hatched from an egg. And he stuck around till I was about 11. And he was very beautiful as peacocks are, but he really hated men, really hated men. Like (laughs) he would have a bad reaction when men arrived he didn't know um so yeah that was this kind of menagerie i guess the man-hating peacock legacy in your life skepticism (laughs) you learned a healthy skepticism of men i have the the male peacock to thank for that he taught me vanity and he taught me to be skeptical of men thank you oberon r.i.p you did your good work yeah, so I, I, I've always grown up with animals around and I found periods of my life where there haven't been animals around have felt, I felt a bit of a lack of it. But I also think that as I get older, I think more along the lines of what you were saying about what could I offer an animal and can I take the responsibility seriously enough? I mean, do you have any important animals in your life right now, apart from lovely Maisie? Yeah, well, Maisie definitely feels like a part of my family now. Actually, my mom sometimes calls her Sophie, but not <laughs> Carrie. <which> Fascinating. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I don't think too deeply about that. But anyway, um, it's interesting what you're saying about responsibility, because I don't have any pets right now. And that is a very deliberate choice because I don't really want the responsibility. And I think it's having a dog, you know, I've seen so many of my friends and people I know adopt dogs over this pandemic. And they're obviously so happy. Most of them are very, very happy with that decision and and would never undo it. But I see how it changes your life to have to accommodate a dog and really make a dog happy. And I am, I'm just not ready to change my life enough to be able to offer a dog that kind of happiness and fulfilled life. And maybe that does make me a bit soulless. You know, again, I feel, I feel kind of guilty admitting that I don't want an animal more than anything else, but I really don't, you know, I love interacting with other animals. Our neighbors have cats that are hanging out in our yard all the time. And, you know, the best thing about cats is all of their different personalities, kind of like you were talking about, like the black one is a, such a attention whore and like, <laughs> and like waits for people to walk down the path outside our house. We see him sort of like slinking along and then like 
like <laughs> like jumping out in front of people and and then like accepting their strokes and ah. showing off is great. <laughs> and then the other one is so shy. It's this tabby, and I it also like kind of blends into the background. So I'll be out in the garden. I'll have been out for like an hour, and then all of a sudden I'll just see the cat looking at me, like sitting very still. Amazing. And then I try to pet him, and he runs away immediately. But I guess what I'm saying is no. I don't really have any animals and I'm not sure that I'm going to get any anytime soon. How about you? Well, there is one very special cat in my life who I believe you know. I do know. I do know. <laughs> His name is Lupo and uh, he has a big personality. But yeah, he lives with my mum and I got him when I was living by myself. I lived by myself for a long time and I realized at this one point that I was very lonely but not lonely enough to want to welcome a human into my life. <laughs> but I I was ready to have a, a creature around so I, I, he was a little rescue and he's grown up to be an absolutely enormous cat. He was a very small kitten and obviously when it's a rescue cat you you don't know what they're going to turn into and he's huge. He's a real tom tomcat but yeah I had him when I was living in my own place and there was a little garden he could jump down into out of the window. And so that all worked out really well. And then I left that place and I was moving around and I was living in rentals where I wasn't able to bring him with me. So he went to stay with my mum, and he went to stay there as my father was really deteriorating in the last couple of years of his life. And at my parents' house, there's a massive garden and he can roam around and it's very free and it's a lot, there's a lot more space and he's so happy there. And he's also been just the most amazing companion for my mum through the loss of dad. And he's, you know, the thing that animals can do, whether they're dogs or cats, really. But this this cat is quite, he's very human focused, which really helps. They can just change the atmosphere of the place. And when you're living alone and all that responsibility is on you all the time, like there's so much about living alone I found incredibly liberating and I loved. But there were times when it was really grindingly hard and for me, those were times when I felt a bit low or a bit frustrated with life or tired and lonely and like sitting in my sitting room and looking at the pile of washing up in the sink and the bins that needed taking out and just being like, oh my God, I'm the only person who's going to do that. And then the cat would arrive and make me smile or get me out of my head because I'd have to do something to take care of him. And it was really, really important. And I can see for my mum now you know, this goofy animal. I mean, he's a pain in the ass. He wakes you up at five in the morning to to play with him, but he's also lovely. And there's a lot of sociological research into the positive benefits of stroking animals for human beings. I believe that. Yeah. Like Love the dopamine hit. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, it's, it's contact, isn't it? It's loving contact. I mean, I feel the same way as you about dogs. I really love dogs, but I am not, willing to be flexible enough right now to the, and I do, I find the commitment of a dog completely overwhelming. I lived with some friends who had a dog and I used to help look after him for a bit and I loved it. I loved walking with Rudy. He's a great, he's a cracking animal. Um, he's really fun, but I tell you what, I did not love all the shit that you have to engage <laughs> with. I just, I am squeamish about shit. I don't love it at all. And I found just the constant picking up of his warm poo and just the like, it's very, it's very degrading for everyone. <laughs> yeah, I don't mind. I actually don't mind that bit. Not that I enjoy it, but I don't mind it. For me, it's like you can never be spontaneous because yeah. you always have to be back for the dog or 
have to walk the dog or if you want to go on holiday, you have to find somebody to take care of the dog. Or bring it with you. Or bring it with you. That was why Um, my father always said we couldn't get a dog when I was a kid. I used to beg for it as a classic lonely only child. I was like, but I can have a best friend. And he was just like, no, because we can't. He was a man who really enjoyed spontaneity and he found the cat enough of a you know, problem essentially. Similarly to you, some of my friends have got dogs in this period and and I can see how much joy they bring to their lives. And it's wonderful because it means I get to hang out with all these dogs without having to look after them. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe this will gross you out, but one of the things that I love about Maisie that's so weird is that um, to poop, she basically <laughs> runs around in a circle like a few times around you and then squats and walks in a circle as she poops. Oh my so God. she basically creates a ring of poop around you that you then have to pick up and like find all of the pieces that oh, she's scattered in Maisie. a circle. <laughs> can't do it any other way. She literally can't just do it like standing still it's so I think weird maybe she's trying to communicate with aliens actually like <laughs> she's like making essentially crop circles but they're poop circles yeah well it doesn't seem to be working because we pick it up maybe she's really frustrated yeah i think she's really fr- that's why she keeps doing it because she's just like just fucking leave it there all right i'm trying but to communicate like so dumb as well oh, she looks I, so dumb yeah. when she's doing it well this is the thing i find hard about dogs is the way that like my my friend rudy the dog um used to lock eyes on me when he was doing a poo <laughs> And I just couldn't bear it. He'd be looking at me with, and obviously, I mean, here's a whole other conversation about pets and we kind of anthropomorphize them, don't we? And we like attribute Mm. all kinds of emotional motivations to their behavior that frankly are probably completely wrong because let's be honest, they have very small brains (laughs) and they're operating on a very limited basis. I am, I think anyway, I might might be horribly offending lots of animal lovers out there, but I, I notice my tendency to create grand narratives for the, for the personalities of the animals in my life. And my friend Billy is always like, babe, the, the brain is smaller than a walnut in that yeah. cat. Well, like they, it's- they have a different way of thinking and being in the world. Right. And they're motivated by instinct. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're um, right. You're right. But I do I do think that with dogs, whenever they do that thing where they stare at you when they're doing a shit, I immediately see shame in their face. <laughs> and obviously that's completely wrong. Like shame is a totally human emotion, I think. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I need to read more about pet psychology. I would recommend everyone read How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. Yeah, I would really it's love to really read it. It's really interesting. It's a very not sanctimonious look at how we treat other animals and thinking about what they know and what they do and what they need in a very thought-provoking way. Mm, brilliant. Because also the whole question of the domestication of animals and the subjugation of animals to human need, like it's complicated and it's obviously an incredibly old thing. We've been doing it ever since we first you know, used horses. I, I don't know. I actually don't know what the first domesticated animals were. I think they probably were dogs, weren't they? I think they were. I don't know. I don't know. Let's not speak on things. Say, I was going to speak authoritatively on something I realized I knew literally nothing about. So um, I mean, listen, I yeah. love it when you do that. It thrills me. <laughs> it really thrills me. But it's it's a bad habit, isn't it, that we all it's have. Ter- it's a terrible yeah. habit. We've been talking a lot about animals, but we haven't really been talking about books. Well, this was my next question, actually. Thank you. <laughs> what about Carrie Plitt, Pets in Books? Yeah. Are there any pets in books that really stand out? I mean, we were both really affected by Mary Gateskill's Lost Cat, which we spoke to her about last year. 
Yeah, definitely Mary Gateskill. I mean, and I, I think that book is such a wonderful discussion of what the love of animals really means and what it means to love another thing and and the kind of inequality of that relationship as well um, and loss and, and all of those things, which I, I know we'll probably get into. But it's interesting when I was looking and thinking about animals and and specifically pets actually in books the really memorable examples are from children's books aren't they yeah so, time. so you know i was thinking of talk the dog in in the phantom tollbooth uh which is a book by norman jester that i really loved as a kid um he's the kind of companion of of milo who's the protagonist the child protagonist in that in that novel um wilbur and charlotte's web uh you know the the animals in harry potter toto and the Wizard of Oz, you know, there, there are these amazing companions, animals in, in children's literature that maybe don't get as high billing in literature written for adults. I don't know. We can talk about that. But one of the examples that did come to mind just because I, I just finished reading it or listening to it actually on audio is uh, the novel Standard Deviation by Katherine Heine. And there's a very funny spell where the main couple they're always having these house guests that the um the wife audra invites over like people she meets on the street who need a place to live they just come and visit and that her husband kind of hates this so they have these house guests at one point that come with a dog that hasn't been announced to them and this dog is named bailey it's this like essentially untrained Labrador, like really slobbery. And the husband just absolutely hates this dog. And as I was reading it, I was like, this is actually so refreshing to have an animal that isn't liked mm. in in a book because so often there are these like, you know, cute, faultless companions who are the the absolute paragon of like innocence and love. And um, but so often, you know, dogs are really annoying sometimes. And so yeah. it was it was nice to read about that. I mean, how about you? Do you have any pets that you particularly like in literature? Well, Toto was was top of my list as just as one that I could really think of. And also Nana, the dog in Pizza mm. Pan, who like is a stand-in for a nanny, which is a whole clusterfuck of a situation. That always really confused me. In fact, I thought it was uh, an actual grandmother for a long time. Oh, really? Yeah. I was grandmother really reincarnated as a St. Bernard yeah. dog. <laughs> I was yeah. like, why is their grandmother a dog? I don't understand. Like, I yeah. didn't understand. Anyway. But it's also quite interesting if you unpick it that, like, the idea of the ideal nanny is is basically the unconditional love of the dog. Mm. And what mm. what is the relationship between the parents and the nanny if the nanny is imagined to be a dog? Yes, I don't know. It's like... It's uncomfortable, <laughs> is what it is. <laughs> the dehumanizing of feminine labor, basically, yeah. like, is a problematic situation. But then I was also thinking of, I mean, another dog that is not a com not an uncomplicated figure in in grown up literature is the dog in Elena Ferrante's book Days of Abandonment, which functions as a kind of cipher for responsibility forced upon the narrator against her will and it's very intense there's also a dog called argos in the odyssey that is odysseus's buddy which i have to say has kind of recast the shop argos in a whole new light for me <laughs> i did not know that they had taken a, a a kind of grecian name for it and and then the other one that is like super powerful in my mind is bill sykes's dog bullseye in oliver twist because the dog in that novel the the it's a it's it's a bulldog and it's it's like a a kind of 
manifestation of Bill Sykes's true character in a way. So like using the dog as metaphor for to kind of deepen our perspective on a character when we first meet them is is kind of a thing. That's a thing, isn't it? Like using pets to kind of say something about somebody's character. Right, which obviously like Philip Pullman took to a totally different level with the demons in his books, which obviously aren't pets, but they, the whole thing of like, he can introduce a character with an animal beside them that represents part of their soul. is kind of pushing that to the furthest point it could go to. And it's one of the things about those books that we all loved so much, you know, the idea that we have, we can have an extension of us in an animal. But the other thing was when I was trying to think about this theme for this recording, I discovered a Wikipedia page, which is just called List of Fictional Dogs. And it is, I'm not kidding, the most chaotic list I've ever seen. It's hilarious. It's, there's no rhyme or reason to what's included and what's omitted. And I suggest if, you, if you're if you bored, having a look. Great. Excellent. <laughs> but do, yeah, why do you think pets are more frequently written about in children's books? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, as we were saying, a lot of the iconic pets in literature, you know, the all of the pets in Harry Potter or Wizard of Oz or Lassie um, are in kids' books. And I, I don't, entirely know why. I do wonder if it's that, first of all, pets are given more equal billing with humans in children's literature. So Mm. like, because I was thinking that there must be more pets in novels that I just kind of forgot about because they're there to serve a function as a way of thinking about somebody's character, as we were talking about, you know, that maybe adult novels are a bit more anthropocentric in that they see animals as sort of serving the the functions of the narrative and the humans therein. I'm not sure. I also wonder if it's because people see loving animals and thinking deeply about pets and our relationship to them as a bit babyish and a bit childish. A kind of part of the innocence of being a kid is is your absolute love for a pet and maybe that goes away although everything we've been talking about I think shows that that isn't the case at all I don't know what do you think right well I think that's totally right and I think that's something that Mary Gateskill really approaches in her book in Lost Cat right because there's that moment where she meets a kind of prickish sounding male academic who kind of taunts her about her sadness over the loss of this cat and he says oh is that your trauma and she's like yes (laughs) yes it is my trauma because it's still love you know like the way I feel about the way I have felt and the way I do feel about the animals that I've cherished is very powerful and strong and I think it is a feeling worth examining but I think it's also a feeling that it is important to examine from the perspective of everything we've been talking about as in what is this what is the purpose of this relationship for you? Because as you said at the top of the show, like it can never be equal. It's not an equal relationship. Mm, So I think it does bear thinking seriously about at the same time as just allowing yourself. Because I do think that one of the powerful things about relating to animals is the link to childhood. Like I, when I think about how I play with Lupo when we hang out, it's very joyful and it's very free. It's very childlike it it hasn't really changed from how I was a kid and I would play with the cat so I do think that there is this like powerful conduit to an innocence and an openness within us that relationships with animals can bring but again the question of whether that's good for the animal is one that we should always have knocking around the back of our minds I think 
But yeah, I think you're right that the reason that the animals that we can think of the most strongly are from children's books is because they're treated, those are the books where they're treated with equal importance to the children. And because children have a way of relating to other creatures that is so non-hierarchical, don't they? Yeah, They just accept yeah. the dog as one of them and then the friend as one of them and everyone is treated equally, which is such a beautiful thing about childhood. Okay, so what other roles do you think pets can play in books? Well, they definitely have a relation to loss, don't they? As as yeah. in, in Mary Gateskill and the Sigrid Nunez that we were talking about. And I think that is partially because so many of us first encounter loss and grief in the form of losing a pet. As I discussed, see. you know, Velvet and Chloe, R.I.P. Mm, R.I.P. Um, that's definitely a part of it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I think also that the heartbreaking thing at the center of any relationship with a pet is that we know that, you know, if the natural order of things is allowed to happen, we will outlive them. So from the beginning, you know, it's a relationship that, that contains pretty much guaranteed loss right from the beginning. Yeah. And I remember, I can't remember which book it is. I feel like it might be in one of Donna Tartt's novels, but I could be wrong. There's a character who basically explains that, that like he always wanted a dog as a child. And then the minute he realized that it meant he would have to lose the dog, he realized he never wanted an animal. And it was kind of used as an example in the novel about fear of loss and basically fear of loving as a result of fear of loss, which is such an interesting thing to get into, such an interesting human conundrum, right? Like, fascinating. Yeah, really fascinating. So another thing to think about when you're just trying to blithely enjoy the company of your pets, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing I was thinking about when I was thinking about pets and novels is kind of what we were talking about before about how they um, they can be used to kind of illustrate the character of their owners. Um, yeah. And I always think about that scene in 101 Dalmatians where everyone has pets that look like them. Oh my God, it's perfect, isn't it? It's so good. I'm also actually thrilled that you mentioned 101 Dalmatians because I'm going to do this very quickly, but I recently learned about the wild sequel to that book. Did you know there was a sequel? I had no idea, no. Let me tell you, this book, it sounds like, has everything. I haven't read it, but um, I can't remember why, but my boyfriend and I were looking it up on the internet the other day. It's called The Starlight Barking. It's also by Dodie Smith. It is completely insane. Like, I, it's... 101 Dalmatians is a, is a very like, you know, it's a very self-contained and kind of brilliant little narrative, isn't it? In the sequel, so the Dearly family and most of the Dalmatians from the first book are now living in this big house in Suffolk, apart from the dog Cadpig, who they have given to the prime minister, as you do. One morning, the dogs find all, they wake up and they find that all other living creatures apart from dogs are sleeping and are unable to be woken up. And they also discovered that all the dogs in the world are suddenly super strong, super healthy, and able to communicate via thought waves. So bam, that's where we are at the beginning. Wow. <laughs> all doors, all, all machines, all gates in the world are suddenly able to operate on command. And Cadpig, because she was the prime minister's dog, is now prime minister. <laughs> and so the cabinet is made up of all the dogs of the cabinet member, of the human cabinet, cabinet members. So the health secretary's dog is now the health secretary. <laughs> The prime minister's dog is now the prime minister. So this is like wild. And Cadpig, the acting prime minister, orders her parents, the Dalmatians, and all the other dogs to come and help her in London. So London is now suddenly flooded by all these psychic dogs. Uh, the dogs discover that they can swoosh or hover at tremendous speed over the ground. So they fly to London. 
Pongo and Mrs. select a squad of 50 Dalmatians, including their adult sons, Patch, Lucky and Roly Poly. Remember them? They yes, swoosh they to London. They're escorted by police dogs to 10 Downing Street. And then Cadpig and her cabinet hold a meeting with Pongo and Mrs. to discover what they're going to do next. And it, it, it goes off from there. But it essentially, some white Persian cats show up. They say that they have to go and murder Cruella de Vil because they're convinced it's her doing. Then an alien dog named Sirius arrives from outer space. He is the Lord of the Dog Star. He explains he's very lonely and he needs some dogs to join him. But then the earthling dogs are like, we don't want to leave our humans behind because actually the greatest love of all is the love of a human for their dog. I can see why they went with the prequel for Cruella. Rather than <laughs> <laughs> it's bonkers. It's bonkers. Yeah, it's totally bonkers. I really and think also, she jumped the shark. Like humans thinking that dogs yeah. are here to love them is exactly. very interesting. Isn't it? It's so interesting. I would go with Sirius, the Lord of the Dog Star, to the dog planet. I would. Anyway, that's just a little a little bit of a pet-centric sci-fi for you guys if you feel like reading um, a novel like that. Wow. Thank you, Octavia. But now I think we should leave the pets behind, my love. I think we should put them in the kennels and move put forward. Put them in the kennels? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, let's not leave them in the kennels. Let's leave them happily in their, in their nice environments and move on to our cultural recommendations. Um, so we will be back after this break to tell you some cool stuff that we have seen or done or listened to in the last couple of weeks. Welcome back to Literary Friction. We're just going to give you one cultural recommendation each this time because we spent a long time talking about pets. So Carrie, <laughs> tell me your, your like top number one thing that you've done in the last couple of weeks. N- number one thing that I've done in the last couple of weeks has actually been watching the Euros, which I'm sneaking in my other recommendation because I'm going to quickly dispense with that because that's a stupid recommendation. But honestly, the football has been great. I think even if you don't like football, international football has just been filled with drama and excitement. And we're in the knockout stages now. Watch the Euros. It's great. But my real recommendation is it's something of a follow-up on our mini-sode on criticism. And it comes by my friend Claire, who is also a very good critic herself. And after listening to the mini-sode, she recommended that I read Kevin Powers' recent review of Megan Nolan's novel, Acts of Desperation in the Stinging Fly, which he basically turns into a larger commentary on book reviewing today, what he calls a review of reviewing itself. And I think you can read this without having read Acts of Desperation, actually, because it really is a kind of meta-commentary on what reviewing is, what it's serving, what it's doing now, his own personal thoughts on reviewing. I don't know if I agree with all of it, but I think it's really good. It's really thought-provoking, and it addresses very eloquently and with curiosity many of the questions and conundrums that we discussed on the mini-sode. I think he he kind of ends up concluding that criticism serves too many masters, which is exactly what we were talking around. And I think he has a really interesting view on that as a critic himself. And I really liked this quote If art, and particularly literature, is a kind of ongoing conversation, then criticism is the arena in which much of that conversation takes place. I thought that was a really nice way to think about 
criticism. And, yeah. uh, and if you enjoyed our criticism, Minnesota, or it made you think more, I'd really recommend turning to this piece. Mm, I will definitely read it. I'd, I'd love to think a bit more about that stuff. That's a great quote. Yeah. And he's a novelist himself as well. So I think he can he can think about what book criticism means in relation to being a writer, which is, again, kind of what we were talking about. So yeah, yeah I, was, I was really glad that she pointed me towards that piece. How about you? Mine is a podcast, which I am currently completely gripped by, and I haven't finished. I think I've got two episodes left. It's called The Lazarus Heist, and it's on BBC Sounds. And let me tell you, it is so incredibly compelling. And actually, it contains so much information. I think I'm going to have to listen to it twice <laughs> because I, I really want to understand. Basically, it's about how North Korea almost pulled off a billion dollar, and I will repeat that, billion dollar hack, raiding Bangladesh's national bank of, and I stress, $1 billion. <laughs> and the only thing that stopped all but 81 million, just a small 81 million going through, being transferred over, was actually a total fluke based on a word showing up on a list. I, I'm not going to spoil it, but it's completely fascinating. It's reported very, very brilliantly by Jeff White and Jean H. Lee. And I think it's partly made with the World Service. I'm not going to give you spoilers, but I'm just going to tell you, it begins in Hollywood. It takes you to the wild casinos of Macau. It involves a very pivotal broken printer in a Bangladesh bank. So many of the details they cover are, are extraordinary. And the one that really, really stuck with me, though, I think on top of anything else, is the fact that North Korea cultivates gifted children to become cyber criminals. So there's this whole group of, I mean, thousands of extremely talented mathematicians who from the age of about 12 are taken out of school. They're sent to Pyongyang, where they're given intense tuition all day. And eventually they are released into the world as cyber masterminds tasked with all kinds of cyber criminality, basically. It's fascinating. Wow. It's quite sensationalist. And I am aware listening to it, you know, they really do structure it like a mystery. And that's one of the reasons it's very compelling. And I do think there are questions one has to hold in mind when consuming that kind of content about the othering and exoticization of cultures that are very different to ours and um, the sort of salaciousness of of political threat. On the other hand, it's fascinating and it's a real education into just so much that I'm ignorant about. And I think, you know, you, you have to get through your life with your eyes on whatever you need to focus on. So you can't possibly be abreast of all the kind of global implications all of the time. But in, inevitably, there are parts of the world that that one remains more ignorant about than others. And I realized that, you know, North Korea is is a country that I really don't understand at all. I, I think mm -hmm. for obvious reasons also, but I, it's it's also just not a part of the world that I have absorbed an enormous amount of information about. So it's a real, real learning curve. And it's fascinating on the links between North Korea, South Korea, China, Bangladesh, parts of the world interacting with one another with no relationship at all to the West. And I think the Western perspective is so often that like everything is in relation to the Western superpowers. And of course, that's absolute bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And I am always quite thrilled when there's stuff out there that is kind of disproving that imperialist view. You know what I mean? It sounds great. It's exactly the kind of podcast that you love. Yeah. I, I know. And so I'm so glad it exists on your behalf. I always lose steam a bit with these ones. I always listen to a couple of episodes and abandon them. I can't, I don't know why. I can't quite like get into the mystery sometimes, but maybe this is the one that will crack 
I don't know. I think your connection to stories is always so driven by human relationships. Like that's where you get your fascination that I think stuff like this is, it struggles to hold your attention because it's, it zooms out from the personal quite often. Mm, Um, That's very observant of me. Well, you know, I know you a bit by now. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's it. We're going to, you know, release you, dear listeners, after this incredibly long conversation. You listen to us talk about how much we loved pets for a very long time. (laughs) It's a lovely way to spend a great summery morning, though. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it too. I know. This is it. Like, guys, please tell us. We're being really overindulgent. Please. Yeah. Please just write an email. It's something that happens to all podcasters, I think, and and radio personalities at some point. You just kind of, yeah, don't know when to stop. So please tell us if we're being boring. That's all the time we have for today. If you made it to the end, you deserve a medal. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a full show. And until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction. (laughs) 